Welcome to For the Love of Yoga, the podcast series where we explore yoga, Vedanta, Tantra, and other schools of spiritual philosophy so that we might live more meaningful lives. For more episodes of For the Love of Yoga, visit us at patreon.com slash yoga with Nish. May these words serve you. So today we're going to be asking a very deep question. You know, we've talked together a lot about what suffering is. We visited Advaita Vedanta or the non-duality of the Upanishads and unpacked suffering as what happens when awareness itself mistakes itself to be a contracted, limited body-mind personality. And then we looked at the Buddha Shakyamuni Buddha, and we talked about the Four Noble Truths and the Buddha's articulation of suffering. And like that, we together figured out why we suffer. You know, we looked at all the planes through which we can view life, the safety and security, red ray of the muladhara orientation, you know, the svadhisthana pleasure-seeking orientation, the manipura power and and accolade-seeking orientation. And we slowly analyzed why each of those orientations to life come up short in with regards to finding absolute fulfillment. So we've done all of that together. Today, we're going to ask a slightly subtler question. And that question is not what is suffering, Rather, the question is, why is suffering? What is the role of suffering in the cosmic scheme of things? What, does, what role does it play? What meaning does it have in this game of creation? And to do this, I'm going to share with you seven different schools of Indian philosophy, each with a different answer to this problem, and you can choose your favorite one. Of course, I'm going to be presenting each of these schools in a rather hierarchical fashion, meaning I will start with the ones that give the least fulfilling answers, and I will close with the one that I believe gives the most complete answer as to why we suffer. Now, it's an important question to ask, and some of you have asked it. I don't know if uh, Gabriella is here, Uh, but Gabriella was asking me about why does Brahman get tricked by Maya? You know, why do we fall asleep to our true nature? Why is it that we have to nirodha the chitta vrittis at all, to use the yogic terminology? Where did the chitta vrittis come from? Why was there a flaw in the design that we needed to correct through spiritual practice? You know, and um, it is an important question because it sheds some light into the process of creation itself, you know, and, and that's, I think, worth exploring. So let's dive into it. Um, Seven schools of philosophy for you today. Each one a little more satisfying than the last with regards to this question. Before I jump right in, uh, disclaimer, remember that in this discussion, it is just that, a discussion. So a thing is only true insofar as it is true for you. There are four standards by which you must judge all the things that I will present to you today. The first and most important is pratyaksha. That means direct observation. So everything I say should check out in the immediacy of your own awareness. If it doesn't, stop me and challenge me. 
You know, be like, I'll debate that. I don't think that checks out. The second one is sad agama, meaning it must be corroborated by scripture. Not just scripture in the Indian or South Asian canon, but scripture, broadly speaking, from every spiritual tradition. You know, so I think it's about time we hold our teachers accountable to citations. So should you desire a citation or a further reading, just, uh, you know, put it in the chat and I'll tell you where I'm getting this from. You know, that's very important. Sadagama. The third thing is Sadguru, which means um, make sure your teacher can walk the talk, you know. Um, and finally, this is the most important, Satarka, your own reasoning powers. So none of these things, although they might sound paradoxical, none of these things are an affront to reasoning. So you should be able to lever leverage any philosophical question from logic, rhetoric, come at it um, in any way, and the philosophy should be able to give you an answer, you know, and it, it's up to the challenge. So engaging with this philosophy on that dialectic kind of level is a very uh, healthy way to engage with it. Indian philosophy demands uh, that you dissent, that you debate, that you wrestle with it, you know. Okay, all of that being said, please feel free to drop anything in the chat as we proceed with today's talk. Seven schools of Indian philosophy. Let's start with the first one. Why do we suffer? You know, and maybe we should just back up a little bit and just for, just for fun, ask what is suffering? And I think we all know from the immediacy of our own awareness what suffering is. In this tradition, we define it as a contraction experience. An unpleasant dukkha, meaning bad space to be in. So it can be a bad physical space, disease in the sense of bodily disease, you know, um, pain in the body that we experience as suffering. It can be mental disease, such as when we are blamed or accused or our reputation is dragged through the mud, or when we experience some kind of grief or misery or ennui or whatever, you know, thought brings us down. That we can call suffering. So suffering is essentially any experience we have to which the reaction is, oh no, I shouldn't be having this. I don't want to have this. This shouldn't be happening to me. Please make it stop. <laughs> so this is very broadly how we will define suffering today. How does it happen? Well, each school of philosophy will give you a different answer as to why suffering, sorry, what suffering is and why it is. So let's start with charvaka. And this, I think, is the least satisfying answer to the question. But it's an interesting school of thought to look at. So charvaka is a materialist school of South Asian philosophy. The Indian philosopher charvaka was one of the world's first atheists. So remember, Charvaka is responding to the Vedic culture in which he was born, a culture full of priestcraft, a culture very immersed in ritual expression, a culture that used mantras and invocations to cajole various natural forces that they personified as gods and goddesses, devis and devas, um, into their service, you know? So Charvaka shows up and he's like, this is batshit crazy. This is super weird, guys. I don't think you can prove the existence of any of this. And in fact, believing in these uh, beings, you know, these gods and goddesses 
is delusional, is wishful thinking. And so Charvaka was like India's Christopher Hitchens or Richard Dawkins, you know. Um, and he denied the existence of a spiritual transcendental world. He was a materialist, meaning he only accepted as real this world of sensation, this world of material existence. And he saw the only way of dealing with this world as through the means of reason, logic, rationality, reason. And it was an ethical school, very interested in ethics and humanitarianism and how to get on with each other in a society. But in all of its expressions, Charvaka rejected transcendentalism. So what Charvaka has to say about suffering is this, very much like Camus in the myth of Sisyphus, very much like all the other French philosophers like Jean-Paul Sartre, you know, smoking cigarettes on left bank, asking why they shouldn't kill themselves tonight, you know, much like those modern philosophers, Charvaka said suffering is just a thing. It's inherent in the world. And he's kind of borrowing a little bit from his Upanishadic predecessors who pointed out Anityam Anityam Sarva Manityam. Of course, the Buddha would say that most famously. But this understanding was already there in India. Anityam Anityam Sarva Manityam, which translates to transient, transient, all is transient. Or changing, changing, all is changing. Maybe better yet, impermanent, impermanent, all is impermanent. The idea here is that anything you can acquire will fade. It will degrade. As much as you love the beauty of the body, that's something that will corrode. The body will not always be young. As much as you might enjoy your wealth tomorrow, you know, for Lady Fortuna's wheel will turn and you'll be smashed under the, 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 the changing tides of the economy. You know? So Charvaka knew that. Much like the Stoic philosophers of Rome and Greece, like uh, Marcus Aurelius and Sextus Empiricus, um, and they weren't quite materialists, they were pantheists, so it's quite different. But much like them in some senses, he just saw this world as being cruel, cruel fate, and we had to get on somehow. So Charvaka, much like material scientists today, don't really question why suffering exists, or at least they accept that it's a thing, and from there, they're interested in alleviating it, you know. So they're interested in what can we do about suffering? So what can they do about suffering? Well, there's a few orientations. The most degenerate form of the Charvaka school, and indeed also of Western material science, is hedonism. That's the one solution to suffering. Since suffering sucks, try to minimize it by maximizing pleasure. At least that will distract you from the futility of a human existence, you know? So pleasure seeking is one solution to the suffering in the world. And you'll see this with a lot of like modern materialists and scientists. You know, the depiction of Christopher Hitchens was standing with his cigarette or cigar in one hand and his whiskey in the other. You know, he was a, a famed partier, bacchanal, you know? Now, there's a problem with this orientation. And we talked about it last week. There are four problems, actually. The first is all pleasure is transient. So it's susceptible to that same critique. Anithyam, anithyam, sarva, anithyam. Any sensory experience of pleasure comes and goes so quickly. You know, you bite the cookie, even the longest orgasm, couple of seconds, comes and it goes, you know. That's the first problem with pleasure. It doesn't give you lasting fulfillment. Second problem with pleasure is that there is a threshold effect. 
So the first, the next high is never as good as the first high. And people in the drug circles know this very well. You know, they are chasing the dragon because nothing will ever be quite as good as that first hit. And so every subsequent slice of pizza is a little less good than the first slice. A little worse. So this is uh, marginal diminishing returns. That's the second problem with pleasure. Yes. The third problem with pleasure is that because of the first two problems, you need a lot of access. So in the pursuing of access, it can cause painful imbalances in the body that are uh, cost more than the pleasure was worth. You know, so that story I told you last week about when you do a lot of ecstasy and then in your later years, you lose bladder control and you can't go for more than a couple of minutes without needing to pee. It's like one of the, my dad's a urologist, so he would tell me that story and I always thought it was so funny. But it's like one of those instances in which we don't know what we'll pay for the pleasures of today until tomorrow. And then we realize, oh man, I can't believe I'm paying this price. So that's a third problem with pleasure. The fourth problem with pleasure is that the appetites that motivate pleasure cannot be sated. They can only be exacerbated. So it's like being thirsty and drinking salt water. The more you drink, the thirstier you become. Thing about pleasure is that the more you feed that wolf, the hungrier it gets. That's the irony, you know. And the fifth problem with pleasure is um, because of the four things I just described, it creates a pattern of addiction. You know, because when the pleasure fails to do what it set out to do, you need more of the same, which of course creates more of a desire for the same. And that frustration that the thing is not working can lead to deeper dives into it. So that pattern itself is an affront to your essential nature as a human being, free and dignified. So the hedonist sooner or later realize, you know, it doesn't work. <laughs> Takes them a couple of lives sometimes. <laughs> I won't get into reincarnation today. We had a whole three classes on it. Don't don't get us started. But you know, it takes us a, it takes them a couple of lives. But eventually, um, they're kind of done with the the pleasure seeking. In Herman Hesse's Siddhartha, you know, he says uh, the game of samsara, meaning this wheel of birth and death, the pleasure seeking, can only be played so many times. Now, in a more mature school of Charvaka and indeed of Western material science, the more mature school says, no, there are ways to deal with the problem of suffering. And that's by committing your life to service and humanitarian ideals like ethics. It's through psychology and trying to understand the brain. Here's the problem, though. This approach depends on science and rationality, which ultimately is a dead end the way it's currently being pursued. So I like the way Swami Sarva Priyananda points it out. You know, I was listening to one of his talks um, with Rupert Spira and Rupert Spira made a point. He's a uh, non-dual thinker and he made a point. He said, our knowledge of the world or our knowledge of science is only as good as our knowledge of the awareness in which it sits. I'm paraphrasing a bit. But basically, he's saying that our orientation in science is a bit flipped around. We're looking for consciousness out there. And this creates a few very startling paradoxes. In the world of mathematics, they're called Godal's paradoxes. Um, so mathematics is in trouble. Rationality is in trouble because of Godal's paradoxes. In neuroscience, they're looking for consciousness, but they are confronted with what the philosopher Adam Chalmers calls the hard 
I'll type this down, the hard problem of consciousness. It's a great Google, but basically the hard problem of consciousness is the inability of modern neuroscience to figure out what it is. The best they can do is uh, neurosynaptic firing, electricity in the brain. You know, it's all very, there's a ghost out there. They couldn't, couldn't identify what it is called the hard problem of consciousness. In quantum mechanics, we have something uh, that Strawson, the philosopher, uh, postulated as the hard problem of matter, which is the more you look for matter, the more it runs away from you. <laughs> you thought the table was solid, then you realized they were made of atoms. You knocked the atom, you thought it was solid. Rutherford said, no, no, it's mostly empty space. It's all the stuff is in the middle. And then you go a little deeper and now quantum mechanics throws up its hands and says, quarks, I don't know. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the particles are getting more and more discrete, more and more immaterial. So that's what we call the hard problem of matter. And of course, um, in quantum mechanics, there are all sorts of terrible paradoxes. So the problem with rationality, and finally, I'll give you Kant. I'll give you Kant's antimonies. This is my favorite. Kant, the powerful rationalist, um, has a paper. It's called the Antinomies. Uh, antinomies or Antimonies? Antimonies, sorry. Anti antimony? One of them is a, a type of metal. The other one is a Kantian thought experiment. I forget. <laughs> but Google will, will help you. you know? So uh, Kant pointed out that rationality defeats itself. You know, so rationality, if pursued to its furthest extremes, meaning if you go through the systems of logic, at least how Aristotle proposed it, it will fail. It will collapse in on itself like the Tower of Babel. That's why the Charvaka school is incredibly, yes, antimony is the metal and antinomy. Yes, that makes more sense. Antinomy, like nomi makes more sense as a, you know, mind thing. Noumena, I think. Yes, yes. Thank you for that. It's like when you say animals. <laughs> it's a hard word, guys. Give me, give me a break. <laughs> Antinomy. So um, now Kant, Godal, the hard problem of consciousness by David Chalmers, uh, Adam Chalmers, sorry, hard problem of matter by the younger Strawson. These are all evidences that rationality is at dead ends in all of its expressions. So that's why the Charvaka school is the first school we're visiting. Because it doesn't give you an answer. It accepts that suffering is real. It does try its best at dealing with suffering, but it's not really able to do it. You know, so that's the first place. Charvaka. I'm finished with Charvaka. Um, and, you know, a big problem here is the orientation. As you notice, Charvaka, uh, or indeed Western material science, looks for consciousness out there. And it um, fails to study the subject. You know, and that's why that there might be those glaring errors in consciousness, uh, in, in studying. Also, there's this weird rule that we just obey axioms. You know, so Aristotle at some point in history said, if a thing is A, it cannot also be not A. So we just accepted this axiom as real, you know, and, and, and this kind of is challenged by a lot of South Asian philosophy, which does very well with paradoxes, you know, because it appeals to different modes of thinking, you know. Um, so that's the problem, hard problem of consciousness, hard problem of matter, Godall's paradoxes, and the terrible paradoxes in quantum mechanics. So that's the kind of the failure of orientation in science. Non-duality, though, does not dismiss science. It only says, let's be more interested in the subject doing the science than the object of the science itself. You know, so we'll get there. So Charvaka, uh, we're kind of done. 
we're done with Charvaka. So let's go to the next school. Um, and this school is Buddhism and I'm going to say Jainism also. If you'll forgive me, I'll just link them together. Because one thing you'll notice is that Buddhism and Jainism is also not really interested in telling you why suffering. You know, I mean, the fourfold truth does to an extent say the root of suffering is your desire for things that in themselves are transient. So you cling on to things that cannot be fulfillingly clung on to, you know. So the Buddha says, you're suffering. And in fact, before the Buddha, not a lot of people realize this. I made the joke some time ago that uh, the Buddha comes and sits next to you on your couch while you're drinking beer and watching sports. And he's like, bro, you're suffering. <laughs> and you're like, what? And then he gives you a three hour lecture with four levels of analysis as to why you are suffering and you don't even know it. <laughs> and he even gives you a 12 step system for how you keep reincarnating. And the kind of engine of that reincarnation is desire. You know, so you keep taking births because you keep craving stuff, karma. But like we explained earlier, the desire doesn't really get consummated, you know, because your desire is for something real, but you're looking for it in a place of change, of immateriality. And so it never really gets solved. So the Buddha, like a lot of, you know, Western material science and Charvaka recognizes that suffering is a thing. You feel an existential, what Satra would later call angst. You feel a little um, existential despair. Now, the Buddha was one of the first persons to really talk about um, dukkha. You know, du means bad, ka means space. So dukkha, dukkha means a bad space. I was listening to the scholar uh, Harish Wallace and he provided an etymology which was very interesting. He said uh, the word sukkha meaning pl uh, comfort and dukkha meaning suffering uh, etymologically come from the wheels of a chariot. It was the spoke, you know, the axis where the axis met the wheel. A sukkha is a well-fitted wheel and axis. A dukkha is a badly fitted wheel and axis. So when the wheel was not a good fit, you'd, you'd be in for a bumpy ride, you know. Now, the Buddha is famous for um, not getting too deep into philosophy that wasn't immediately practical. You know, his big quote was, if you were shot by a poison arrow and you were brought to a doctor, the doctor wants to remove the arrow. Would you stop the doctor and say, wait, 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 I have a few questions. Who shot the arrow? What angle did the arrow pierce my flesh? What was the poison made of? <laughs> by the time you got through all your questions, you'd be dead. So the Buddha says there are certain questions that are not practical. And so there were certain things that he refused to answer. For instance, does the Buddha reincarnate? Does the Buddha not reincarnate? Neither? Both? <laughs> is the world eternal? Is it not eternal? Is it both eternal and not eternal? Is it neither eternal nor non-eternal? So these are the questions the Buddha said are not worthwhile in answering. The fact of the matter is there is suffering. And life is suffering, you know. Desire is the root of that suffering. There is a way out of suffering. Here it is. Eightfold path. So the Buddha is a surgeon, you know, pragmatist, practical. He sees the problem, makes an incision, takes it out. So while the Buddhist school is very effective at dealing with suffering, it's much more effective than the Charvaka school. It doesn't give you a philosophical explanation about suffering beyond its root as desire. So of course, you might ask, right? 
What's the root of desire? <laughs> and the Buddha says, no, 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 uh, not important. I, I've done enough for you philosophically. Let's get to work. <laughs> Jains are the same. So Mahavira Vamana, a contemporary of the Buddha, started the Jain school. And the Jains see suffering as linked to karma. Well, we talked a lot about this in our reincarnation class. But the Jains say, every time you incur karma, which is literally accompanying every action in this world, particularly Literally, those actions that cause harm to others, every time you incur karma, it keeps you in samsara, meaning the wheel of birth and death. So the Jain school, like the Buddhist school, is very practical. Notice the Buddhist and Jains are both atheistic schools. You know, they don't really um, go into God at all. They don't really talk about any kind of you know, being. And even the Buddhists are famous for anatma theory. You know, there's no soul theory. There is no soul in the mind, not in the body, in the pancha skanda, all the five parts of the mind. No soul can be discovered. So the Buddha, he says, um, nirvana means blowing out of suffering. And he says, there's no reality in the world. Shunyam, shunyam, sarvam, shunyam. It's all void. There is no reality in you, in your mind and in your body. So practice this and find that out for yourself and get out of here as quick as you can. You know, the Buddha says, wake up, Neo, you're in the matrix. And he's interested in getting you out of there as quickly as you can. The Jains are like that also. They say, wake up, Neo, you're in the matrix. And you keep writing yourself into it with all these new lines of code called karma. You know, so that's the problem. And the Jains say, try to reduce your karmic load. So they'll wear their masks so they don't breed the insects. They'll sweep the ground so they don't step on the insects. Um, they don't eat fruit unless it's dropped. And that's their orientation, their approach along with some yoga and, and, and other kinds of esoteric practices. Okay, so we're done with Charvaka. We're done with Buddhism and Jainism. Let's go to, be, let's go to one more place, uh, the next place, one to third place. This one is the um, Hindu dualistic schools. You know, the first one and the least satisfying to me, and you know... Uh, um, I have to admit that I'm particularly partial to non-duality. So, of course, this discourse is flavored by that non-dual bias. Just want to acknowledge that bias. Now, the third place we'll visit is the Vaishnava dualist school. So, in Vaishnavism, they say there is a God. It's out there. It's a conscious being. And it's a controller of this world. It's the creator of this world. A lot of Christianity um, and... Uh, you know, other modern faiths have this approach to. There is a God. Um, perhaps we cannot define this being. It's beyond definition. Might not be even able to give it a name. The name is unpronounceable. You know, yod he vav he unpronounceable. Uh, but it's out there. And it's the controller of this universe. And it's responsible for the suffering. It created that suffering. And then you ask why. And you get all sorts of bizarre answers. Like, oh, it created suffering because without suffering, you wouldn't know good. And then you ask, well, why did it need so much of it? <laughs> if you just needed one for comparison, could you just have a little bit of suffering? You know, um, the answer doesn't really satisfy. You know, and we're supposed to just accept this greater good or something like that. And so that's a little bit difficult. And Charvaka was definitely responding to that as wishful thinking. Anyway, that's another orientation. And that orientation is very bhakti oriented, which is you suffer. You suffer because God made it so. And the way out of suffering is accruing certain merit. You know, so in Islam, it's called pahala. 
Um, all the traditions have this kind of do this and you will accrue merit and you'll find your way out of suffering. Maybe it's in a future heaven. Maybe it's in a vision or ecstatic vision of Krishna, you know, but whatever it is, devote your life to God, acts of service, acts of worship, etc. And this will bring some measure of relief. Of course, many of you have, you know, been born into such an orientation and in its worst forms, it's an exoteric um, state control mechanism or, you know, at best a survival machine. So it hasn't really given you the spiritual answers you seek. And in its best form, it's a powerful school known as the Bhakti movement that Lord Chaitanya in the 15th century uh, uh, AD, sorry, 15th century, yes, formulated it in Bengal. It's a powerful, excellent school but dualistic. Okay, our fourth school. Now, and we're kind of blitzing through this. I think we're doing pretty well. <laughs> we're getting closer, don't worry. The fourth school is um, Dankya and Yoga. So this, like Vaishnava, is a dualistic school. Dualistic in that they think two things exist. One is a transcendental world, and the other is a material world. Notice the difference. Charvaka said only one thing exists. That is the material world. Charvaka rejects the existence of a transcendental world. This Sankhya says, no, two worlds exist. The transcendental world exists and this material world exists. They both exist. The Buddhist don't believe either of them exists. Do you see? That's why there's a lot of like... Uh, kind of atheist, nihilists, and others who jump onto Buddhism very easily. Because it's like just a short walk away from the atheism that they were used to. You know, So Buddhism is very like intellectually welcoming to some very hardcore atheist, materialist, and nihilist. <laughs> yes. Um, so the Buddhists say no reality exists. Practice and find out for yourself. It's all void. The Charvaka says only this reality exists. The Sankhya people say two things exist. There is Purusha, the transcendental realm of spirit, and there is Prakriti, you know, the realm of nature. Both are equally real. Plato makes the same point. There is a world of form. It's real. It's legit. But there's also this world where we see the shadows of the forms kind of reflected on the cave wall, you know. Um, obviously, one world is better than the other, as you can tell from Plato and Patanjali and Sankhya Kapila. The world that we like is the, the transcendental one, the world of spirit. The world that kind of causes suffering is this world of Prakriti, nature, the degenerate world. So here we have a kingdom of heaven and we have a Babylon or a world. They're diametrically opposed. Again, though, they don't really tell you why suffering happens. Except maybe Patanjali, he offers in the Yoga Sutra, which is a text that emerges anywhere between 500 BCE to 500 AD, 500 CE, I should say. The text says the root of suffering is ignorance. Okay, now we have something a little deeper than the Buddha, because the Buddha said the root of suffering is desire. Now we can say the root of desire is ignorance. Ignorance of what? Ignorance of your true nature as pure, transcendental spirit. You find this idea in the Vedas and the Upanishads. You know, in the Upanishads, it says there is a soul inside you. It's known as the self or the Atman. And we'll talk about it in a bit. Now, that Atman, according to the Upanishads, cannot be cut by steel, 
cannot be drowned by water, cannot be burnt by fire, cannot be touched, cannot be smelt, cannot be seen, you know, cannot be interacted with in any material way. It is categorically different in substance, in essence, than anything in the material world. So it cannot even be thought of in material terms. Plato says the exact same thing. He says, all you can see is shadows and mist. You cannot even imagine what that world is like once you leave the cave. You know, he's got his famous allegory of the cave. So Patanjali and Kapila in Sankhya and Yoga philosophy says exactly this. You suffer because you take yourself to be the body and the mind when in fact you are not the body and the mind. You are Purusha, the spirit, the subject, the seer. So if you look in the Yoga Sutra, it says in line three, Tada Drashtu Swarupe Vastanam. When you achieve yoga, you will then be established in your true nature. You will rest. You will abide. You will peacefully exist in what you always were, what you always will be, and what you are now, if only you had the ability to see it. And that is pure spirit. You have nothing to do with matter, actually. You just think through some error and, you know, Sankhya doesn't really tell you how that error happens. But through some error, Purusha has gotten all mixed up with Prakriti. Now, the two cannot touch. The idea is that they've come near each other. And Purusha is starting to reflect the qualities of Prakriti. It's just like a mirror reflecting a distorted image. You know, If you could find that you are the mirror, you would be done with all the images. And no longer would you fear death. You wouldn't fear disease. You wouldn't fear any kind of mental anguish because all of those things are only in the body and the mind. If I could show you that you aren't the body and the mind, then I can free you from your suffering. I really have to show you though. So how am I going to do that? Well, much like the Buddha prescribed a very rigorous syllabus of meditation and austerity. <laughs> so Sankhya eventually gives birth to yoga and yoga gives you the Ashtanga yoga or the eight uh, limbs of yoga and it teaches you much like the buddha how to have right action right speech right thought right, all that stuff right meditation and eventually you'll come to realize it okay fine still not getting what we want we still haven't gotten why suffering you know so now we're gonna go to i think our fifth place actually i intended this to be the sixth place because I wanted to end on seven. I thought that would be quite poetic to do. So let's just pretend we're on our sixth place now, okay? We'll split Buddhism and Jainism. <laughs> okay, so the sixth one is this. And this one I, I love, and it's second best. It's the second best. This one is Advaita Vedanta, which I believe to be the most mature philosophy that you can find in India, second only to Kashmiri Shaivism, which I'm going to offer next. Sorry, I let the cat out of the bag there in case you <laughs> held in suspense. So um, non-dual Vedanta or Advaita Vedanta makes a very startling claim, actually. Remember how I said Charvaka thinks that only the material world exists? And then I said that Patanjali and Kapila think that two things exist. Advaita Vedanta says only one thing exists. The transcendental world. Not even, not even that. Awareness alone is the only thing that exists. That's a startling claim. And in fact, they don't even say you need a lot of meditation to see this. It can be proven to you now in the immediacy of your own awareness that that alone exists. 
Tattvamasi, as it says in the Chandogya Upanishad. Only awareness is, everything else is a seeming appearance. This is a redundant statement, seeming appearance. Sorry, everything else only seems to exist, but it doesn't in actuality. So this is a startling claim. It says this entire material world is not what you take it, it's not what is actually there. I can show it to you and we'll do it in a little bit. Um, we have the time. And, you know, one thing I should point out with this view is that it's very radical, but it has a few repercussions. So on one level, it's a physical refutation to the existence of matter. So you saw the hard problem of matter. It was already being articulated by the Advaita Vedantins of 700 AD India. They were very clear. They said, look, knock the table, you know, knock, knock the hard things. You think it's solid? It's not. It's mostly empty space. Startling. They made that claim. Now in quantum mechanics, they're catching up, you know, they're like, oh, actually, there's nothing there. So what you took to be solid, you now know is mostly empty space. That solidity is a, is a mere seeming. It's a mere appearance. It's like the stick that you put in the water that appears bent, you know, but it's not actually that way, as Descartes talks about in his meditations. So the world as a solid entity isn't really there. Next, the next startling claim is that the world you see is not the world that exists because of your psychological coloring of it. And the example I usually give is, say you're at a party and you're sitting down with a carpenter and there is a table in front of you. You are both seeing very different tables. You, you see the table in one way. The carpenter who's trained her whole life sees the table in a whole different way. She notices the grain. The table appears more vivid and, you know, full, more rich as an experience to her than it does to you. Another example is, you know, you're at a party and across the, the, the you know, other end of the room, there's an attractive stranger. You get quite excited and you can't wait to go over and talk to them. And you walk over there and you start talking and within a few sentences, you realize that they're a complete jerk. <laughs> Not what you thought at all. Now, you notice that their appearance, literally, not literally, but actually phenomenologically changes. You know, they look less cute. They like actually look less cute. <laughs> or the way food looks when you're hungry. Now, the idea is that you look out into the world and you think you're seeing some objective reality. But in fact, the only thing you're seeing is a superimposition or a projection onto reality based on your own psychological coloring. <laughs> this is called adhyaropa or superimposition. So Advaita Vedanta is a very mature kind of philosophical and also psychological critique of believing in reality too much. You know. So why do you suffer? You suffer because you take this reality to be a lot more real than it is. Namely, your body and mind become way more important to you than they ought to be. You know, they're seeming realities, but they're not. Now, I can prove that to you. So we've got a little time. I can give you Drig Drisha Viveka. The promise of non-duality is you only need one insight and then you're free. You don't need a lot of, you don't need meditation. You don't need this uh, eightfold path or Ashtanga yoga. You just need one insight. Okay, but here's the problem. 
um, to really internalize or grok that insight requires quite a bit of spiritual practice. <laughs> so Sarvapriyananda makes that joke, you know, it says Advaita Vedanta, one insight, it's the direct path. Then there's a little uh, asterisk. And if you look at the bottom of the agreement, it says, but many, many lifetimes of spiritual uh, training required <laughs> to get the results. But if you can follow this argument, if you can really not just understand it on an intellectual or conceptual level, but if you can really feel into the vibration of this argument that I will present, um, you should be spontaneously awakened. You know, and we'll see what that means in a moment. So the argument is called Drig Drishya Viveka. It's got two parts. The first one is uh, uh, the distinguishing of the seer and the steen. So follow this. This is the scene, meaning this is the object. And my eyes are the seer, meaning my eyes are looking at the object. Seer and scene. I know that I, as the eyes, as the seer, am different from the cup that is the scene. I know that the seer and the scene are always different. Yes? In order to have any experience of seeing, there must be subject and object. That's a given, linguistically even. Okay, so I've got the seer and the scene. Next, the next fact of this experience is that I know that I am the seer, not the scene. So I identify more with the subject than I do with the object. You know? So if you came to my house and took this cup away, I'd be a little sad. I like it. You know, I like this painting. But I wouldn't be that sad as if you came and poked my eyes out. <laughs> because I believe myself to be the eyes more than I believe myself to be this cup. So now I know that I am the seer, not the scene. So I know I am not the cup. Yeah. Now, let's go further. If you blink now, you know, can you feel that? Can you feel that you're blinking? Or are you aware of your blinking? What's going on now is your eyes have become the scene and your mind has become the seer. Do you notice your mind is able to watch the eyes? So I'm able to like take my glasses off and everything gets blurry. And then I put my glasses on. I can see your smiles again and it warms my heart. And then there, they're gone. Where do you go? You know, so I'm doing something now where my eyes are the thing being observed and my mind is the one doing the observer. So the mind is now the seer, the eyes are the scene. This is a startling move. Earlier, I said the seer and the scene are two different things. I am the seer, not the scene. I rejected the cup as being the scene. Now I can reject my eyes also as being the scene. And by that virtue, my nose, my ears, my whole body. In this one philosophical move, I have declared that I am no more the body than I am the cup. We can go one step further. You can say, oh, I am the mind, but wait, are you able to turn the mind into an object? Certainly, you know. Beyond just the process of introspection, beyond just the mind looking at the mind, you can, as a witness of the mind, objectify the mind. So now you are no longer the mind. You are the one who watches the mind. Consider the implications of this. You are not your personality, which is nothing more than a bunch of thoughts you've collected about who you are in relation to the world. Thoughts that your parents gave you, your guardians gave you, culture gave you, thoughts that you clung on to. You know, all that's in the mind. Now you might say, Anish, this is all well and good, but if I came and I smashed your cup, you know, it would be different than if I smashed your knee. Because if I smashed your knee, you would say, ow. <laughs> 
Now the answer to this, you know, the rebuttal is, what about pain? Doesn't pain say that I am the body? The rebuttal is elegant. It says, notice that pain is nothing more than an experience. If I can be the awareness around that experience, that pain doesn't necessarily translate to suffering. Suffering only happens when I protest to an experience. So when some experience arises in my consciousness and I say, no, that shouldn't be happening, that's suffering. And that's distinct from pain. If I'm able to internalize that, I will no longer suffer. It doesn't mean I won't feel pain. It doesn't mean I won't feel emotions such as grief or anger. It just means I'm no longer resisting or rebelling or protesting to those things. And funnily enough, that dissolves the experiences too. And a lot of modern psychology says, you know, we feel pain long after its vibration has left the body. We cling on to it. So Advaita Vedanta tells you this. It says, this is the first step, you know, you are not the mind, you are not the body. So this is Sankhya. This is Sankhya. Sankhya says you are something separate from the world. Advaita takes it one step further. Now, you are not the world, but how is the world connected to you? And the answer is, everything is contained in awareness. Nothing can be shown to exist outside of awareness itself. You know, if you said, Nish, let's leave this room. We'll put a video camera here and I'll prove to you that this room exists separate from any conscious beings being in it. I'll say, sure, but all your experiment can prove is in the awareness of us looking at the camera. You know, it all happens within awareness itself. Heisenberg and Schrodinger showed this in their equations, um, that things don't actually exist until you're looking at them. Phenomologist, no, phenomenalist like Bishop Berkeley, the English philosopher, was arguing this also. Now, the idea is that awareness gives birth to everything. You know, so when I take this cup, is there an object cup separate from the form, shape, and color of this thing? Let's experiment. If I took this away, is there still an object known as cup here? Do you still see the cup? You don't, hopefully, I don't know. (laughs) Only in memory, but in actuality, all you're getting is this color, shape, and form. Separate from this, there is no object cup. That's in my mind. You know, my label cup is in my mind. Now, is there color, shape, and form outside of my seeing? No, if I close my eyes, it's gone. So the cup and the form is gone. Now, is there any seeing outside of my awareness? And the answer is obviously not. That means that everything that exists, exists inside awareness. If I can only understand that my true nature is awareness, I'm finished with suffering. But it still doesn't explain why we made that mistake in the first place. Why did we identify with the body and the mind? You know, what happened? Now, the non-dualist Advaita Vedantin will say, ah, it's just an error. No big deal, bro. It's just an error. Um, it's called Maya, this world of illusion. And it's a property of Brahman. Brahman is the name, much like the Tao. It's the name of the awareness principle. You know, so don't think of it as God. The non-dualists are very kind of embarrassed by the idea of a God being out there. You know, the old, the, that God exists only relative to my awareness. <laughs> you know, so if anything, it, it's, it's an expression of that awareness. So this is what the non-dualists say is the supreme good, the supreme principle. It's 
a beautiful idea because it's radical inclusivity. If I can identify with my awareness, then naturally I accept all the things that vibrate within that awareness. I no longer see myself as different from you. There is only one awareness that flows through each of us and everyone else, and everything is loved and cherished and embraced in that awareness. So this non-duality makes you very peaceful, very loving, um, but it doesn't answer why you fell into the trap of Maya. The best they can do is to say, Brahman is that awareness and it has a property. That property is known as Maya or il- illusion. You know, so there's, a, there's a property of this thing. It's not separate. It's, there's not a second thing. It's only one thing. It's awareness. But that awareness can sometimes hide itself from itself. And that's called Jagat Mithya, the seemingness of the world. Once you know Brahma Jnana, meaning once you know that you are the awareness alone, the seemingness of the world fades away like a bad dream. That doesn't mean that you disappear. You're still around. Um, But you are somewhere else. And by somewhere else, I mean you are no longer in the prefrontal cortex seeing the world as things to run after and things to run away from. You're no longer looking at people like, how can I use this person for some form of gratification, you know, uh, security, sexual power gratification? How can I do this and do that? All of that has changed. Now you're content to just sit, allow the body and mind to do its activity, but you are uninvolved. You're sitting calmly watching. It's beautiful. It's a wonderful, inclusive awareness. Still didn't get the answer though, you know. So we'll close now with Kashmiri Shaivism, which is another flavor of non-duality. So it also says Kashmiri Shaivism is kind of like um, pioneered by two great thinkers, Abhinava Gupta and Shema Raja, and also, you know, Utpala Devi, Deva, who were writers in Kashmir around the 9th and 10th century AD. And they were formulating a philosophy known as Tantra, which existed in the Indian subcontinent as early as maybe 5 AD, 5th century AD, probably earlier than that, and comes to its peak in the 10th century. So this version of non-duality says this, and we'll close with this very beautiful thought. In fact, it's one of those thoughts that you can even kind of savor with the eyes closed in a meditation posture, if, if you'd like. And I'll give you the thought. In the beginning, in fact, even before the beginning, before there is even a concept of time to make sense of beginning and end, before there was even a concept of space, there was this pure, vibra- uh, pure um, existent consciousness. The nature of that consciousness was bliss. You yourself now can feel that. As you start to follow the breath, you will notice that somewhere behind the mind, behind the thoughts, there is a sweetness. This is called ananda, bliss. It's not ex- it's not that like exciting kind of, you know. It's different. It's categorically a different emotion. Not even an emotion, a vibration. This thing feels to you, you can feel it now, as authentic and real. It's more legit than any of the experiences you've had through the ego or your five senses. You know, you've tasted it in your shavasanas. You've tasted it walking on the beach. You've tasted it in quiet moments in between your day when the dialogue in the mind for just a moment stops. There's a gap. 
Now, this sat, meaning existence, this chid, meaning consciousness, and this ananda, meaning bliss, we give the name Shiva. Shiva is the conscious Tao. It's the conscious Brahman. And Shiva has a desire. Deep within Shiva, there is an Icha Shakti, meaning a desire to experience itself through itself. It has a desire to make art. Believe it or not, this conscious entity sooner or later decides to make art. <laughs> and its nature as existence, consciousness, bliss is necessarily infinite. The word Brahman actually means vastness. You know, etymologically, it means vastness. So consider now the vastness of your awareness in which everything exists. This vastness decided to express itself. But if an infinite being expresses itself, won't its expression also be infinite in nature? Necessarily, that infinite expression must include, it must radically include every Hitler, every Pol Pot, the blackest despair, the deepest envy, the most horrifying illness, as it also includes the St. Theresa's of Avila, the Mother Mary's, the, the Jesus's, and all the sublime figures you can imagine. It's an infinite expression. She is the goddess Para or Sarasvati, beautiful and sweet, but she is in that same breath, the goddess Kali, dark and terrifying. They are one and the same goddess, and... It is all this dance within consciousness itself. Nothing is real except relatively so. Absolutely nothing is going on. Absolutely speaking, consciousness has emanated into existence, seemingly this world of form, but it's not separate. It's made of its own substance. This world is made of nothing but awareness. And it seems to us as this thing, this solid thing. So what is suffering for? Here's the answer. Suffering is the experience when an expansive vibratory form known as Shiva, which by the way, this philosophy sees creation as vibratory. You'll see it in Spanda Karika, the doctrine of vibration, very quantum, you know, the idea that everything is just vibration on different frequency levels. The, take the highest, most rarefied frequency. That's Shiva. That's what you are in essence. And to express itself in creation, Shiva sang a song. And in that song is every other frequency, every other vibration. And it's a spectrum. So it goes from the most rarefied, high frequency vibration to the densest, most contracted vibration. As you move from expansion to contraction, there is something that happens, which is you fall in love with this limited form. Of course you would. You created it out of love. You know, there is a reason that Heather is here. Of all infinite expressions, Shiva chose to manifest as the vibration Heather, as the vibration Nish. Of course, naturally, there is a tendency to identify exclusively with this body and mind known as Heather or Nish. And when we do that, we experience something we call suffering, which is just the experience of being in a straitjacket or being in a room that's too small for who we really are. It's when the puzzle piece doesn't fit, you know. So Kashmiri Shaivism says suffering has a purpose. Suffering is the call that a contracted form hears to bring it back to an expanded form. So think about this. When you touch a hot stove, 
and you move your hand away, you're kind of thankful for your pain response, are you not? If it wasn't for that pain response, you would continue to hold your hand on the damn stove and you would lose it, you know? So that pain response, that suffering you feel in life is a beautiful feedback mechanism from consciousness to consciousness to return to a more expanded state. It's not you're, you're going anywhere. It's just that you are identifying with something that is not what you really are. And in fact, it's just because you are not just that thing. So don't get me wrong. You are really Heather and I am really Nish, but I am also everything else. You know, as long as I think that I am Nish exclusively, I suffer. But my suffering is functional. My suffering is instrumental in turning me around and taking me to my true form. Chidananda Rupa Shivoham Shivoham. I am the sky of consciousness. I am Shiva. I am Shiva. That's what suffering is for. Kashmiri Shaivism, in closing, we'll, we'll leave you with this one comment. Kashmiri Shaivism says suffering is the feedback mechanism of consciousness to consciousness. Suffering tells you that you are thinking about things wrongly. Every time you suffer, it tells you that you have a vikalpa or a delusion about who you are and what the world is. Suffering is here to show you that your framework of orientation is wrong. So come and uh, revise it. Revise it and revise it until it aligns with reality. So when you come to this philosophy class and we do Kashmiri Shaivism, I am giving you what in this tradition we call Shuddha Vikalpas. Vikalpa means a delusion or a fantasy, meaning nothing I tell you is true. Nothing I can tell you will be the truth. It can only point to the truth. But in entertaining these concepts, in immersing yourself fully in these ideas, you come to align yourself with reality in such a way that your mind is obliterated. You can think of it as a garden hose. Right now, there's a kink. That kink is caused by your incorrect assumptions about your mind, body, and world. As long as there's a kink, you are cut off from the energy of your true nature. And that's why you feel kind of, uh. but every time you get a correct thought, Every time you internalize a good model of reality, that kink slowly starts to undo itself and finally snaps and there is an upsurge of force. In other words, the prism through which you are looking at all these colored lights breaks and the white light of reality, which is your true nature, hits you full force. Your mind is obliterated. And like that, you've achieved yoga's chitta vritti nirodaha. You've achieved the cessation of the movements of the mind. Then... You rest in Chidananda, the sky of consciousness. So this tradition tells you suffering, you created it. You created it as the necessary tension to pull the yo-yo back to source. Everything you suffer, you chose to suffer. The Vajrayana Buddhists have the same idea. You chose your parents. You chose your lack of parents. You chose your guardian. You chose what disease would manifest at what time in your life. And you chose who would be around you when that disease manifested. You chose when you would meet certain teachers, when you would encounter certain ideas. Right now, you are choosing to hear only selectively of what I have to tell you, you know, the Ramda says, you will hear only what you're determined to hear. And Jesus would often say, um, you know, uh, let he with ears hear, like he who has ears hear. The idea here is that anything anybody gives you, you will only take what you are ready and choosing to take at this stage of your journey. 
how much of what I said will resonate with you, you have chosen. Because there is still some suffering that you might want to do out of fun. This is the final thought of this philosophy. Shiva created this world as art, and so necessary, necessarily, Miles Davis doesn't play bad notes to freak you out. Miles Davis plays brown notes in order to explore his music in a fuller way. So if you are suffering right now, chances are it's Shiva wanting to suffer in that way. It's a valuable experience. And that suffering is valuable because eventually it will lead you beyond all suffering and then the game is over. Then you would have played to your heart's content and then, you know, um, then you can play some more, but there won't be any suffering, you know. So right now you are playing the part of a spiritual seeker. When you want to become enlightened, you will be. You just will be. When Shiva decides, Shiva decides, you know. So please refer back to our talk about free will. When you are at the first part of your journey, you feel disempowered. You feel you have no free will. You are a victim to your samskaras, to your addictive patterns. You get a little better at spirituality and now you feel like an agent. You know, you feel strong. You feel like the author of your life. You go a little bit higher and now you realize you never had any free will at all. <laughs> you, you were always Shiva. Every expression was an expression of art. There was no real suffering except in appearance. It all makes sense beautifully as a song, as an artwork. And the final thought, it's no big deal. <laughs> it might seem that way, but it's no big deal. Okay, these are the seven schools of Indian philosophy, each giving you a different definition of suffering and a different justification for why it's there. Let's now close our class. Sorry, we went 10 minutes over. Let's close our class perhaps with a final OM. Um, and you're welcome to join me for the OM or chant anything else you'd like. So I will um, take an inhale. We'll chant the A, U, Ang. And we'll do the silence. And then I will chant the Triyambagam Mantra once. The mantra means, please, uh, oh, hail the three-eyed one Shiva, which is your true self. Remove me from my bondage the way you would pluck a cucumber from the cucumber root. With that beauty and grace, pluck me. <laughs> okay, sitting upright. Perhaps bringing the hands over the heart. Let's inhale to Om and the Triambangam Mantra. Triambagam Yajamahe Sugandim Pushti Vardhanam Urvarukamiva Bandhanan Mrityor Mukshiyam Amritad Ah